Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Episode 92 is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and specifically different implications of the incarnation that are brought up by the early Christians. So please stick around for this. If this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, you can find all of my resources on my website, Phil sbaker.com. Resources like my book, link to my Patreon page, blog, music, all of that. And speaking of music, here's a preview of a song called Remember Me, which is off my upcoming album, which should be released January 15th. Oh my God, I never thought I'd go this far. Never thought my broken heart would break so many more. My world crashed down at 12. I gotta grow up now, but I'm not throwing blame around. I'm done for sure. We'll again be looking for that album called Kingdom Come, January 15th of 2021. Well, I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt. Please go check out the website as well, omegafrequency.com, where you can find some really cool stuff. And lastly, go subscribe to the YouTube channel, Omega Frequency, where you're going to get really great content every week week, multiple videos. So please go subscribe there. Finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get episode 92 rolling. Well, around this time of year, countless churches around the world are reading passages like this, Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, Favored one, 
the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. Moving to verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Moving to Luke chapter two, verse one. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Such a powerful passage of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of God, the savior of the world. Now, though putting my cards out on the table, I don't believe that Jesus was born on December 25th. And many of the reasons for that come right out of the gospel of Luke. What is more important than when Jesus was born are the implications of his birth, the implications of his incarnation. And the early Christians wrote much 
about the incarnation of Christ. But before we do that, before we look at their words, I want to look at one other passage from the New Testament, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I want to discuss a few implications of the incarnation of Christ that John brings out. So we will read these verses and along the way, pause and briefly highlight some of these implications of Jesus's incarnation. John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Just pause for right there for a minute. This word, word is logos and it means the reason for all things. That's one way of thinking about it. And the wisdom of God which is God and which has always been with God, created all things and came into our world. All life is found in him and all truth is found in him. And he is the way all men find truth. Starting in verse six, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Pause for a second. The creator of the universe, your creator, my creator, came into the world to people who would reject him and yet gave us the right to become children of God, if we would believe in him. And he gave us the ability to believe in him, to become born of God, regenerated, born of above, to become his children. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Yes, we were all given grace. The sun shines on the righteous and the wicked. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. We were all given common grace. And yet in Jesus, we are all given this grace, this opportunity not to just experience the good things of the world, but we are given the opportunity to become children of God. He ransomed us and rescued us, paid the penalty for us to be delivered, translated out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into his kingdom if we would receive him. For the law, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, yet the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. Do you want to know what God is like? One of the major implications of the incarnation is that we know what God is like now. He didn't send us merely scriptures, though he did. He sent us himself. He sent his son to us so that we can see God explained in flesh and blood. All right, so let's get into some of the early Christian writings about the incarnation of God. And then at the very end, I will share one last biblical implication about the incarnation, okay? So we're gonna start and do things kind of chronologically. So we're gonna start with a letter to Diognetus, which was written by a guy named Methetes around the year 125. And this is what he has to say about the incarnation and the divinity of Jesus. The almighty himself, the creator of the universe, the God whom no eye can discern has sent down his very own truth from heaven, his very own holy incomprehensible word to plant it among men and ground it into their hearts. To this end, he is not, as one might imagine, sent to mankind some servant of his, some angel or prince. It is none of the great ones of the earth, nor even one of the vice regents of heaven. No, ordainer, disposer, and ruler of all things is he. Of heaven, 
and all that heaven holds, of earth and all that is in earth, of sea and every creature therein, of fires, ether, and bottomless pit, of things above and things below and things in the midst. Such was the messenger God sent to men. And was his coming as a man might suppose in power, in terror, and in dread? No, not so. It was in gentleness and humility. As a king sending his royal son, so sent he him. As God, he sent him. As man to men, he sent him. And that because he was pleased to save us by persuasion and not by compulsion. For there is no compulsion found with God. His mission was no pursuit of hounding us. It was an invitation to us. It was in love, not in judgment that he sent him, though one day he will indeed send him to judge us. And then who shall abide in the day of his coming? He bore with us and in pity, he took our sins upon himself and gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy for the wicked, the sinless for the sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorrupt for the corrupt, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy, but in the Son of God alone? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable working, O benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of the multitudes should thus be hidden in the one holy and the holiness of one should sanctify the countless wicked. He reveals to us a savior who has the power to save even the powerless. The purpose behind both of these acts is that we should believe in his goodness and should look on him as our nourisher, father, teacher, counselor, healer, wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life, and have no anxiety about our clothing or food. Pretty powerful passage from a letter to Diognetus. And one of the main, main implications there is that by looking at the goodness of God, we would stop being anxious. Such a problem running through our society today. We who have everything that we need, everything at our fingertips, the richest and wealthiest society that the world has ever seen, struggle so much with anxiety. We need to dwell more on the implications of the incarnation. Melito, around the year 170, Melito was a Jewish convert to Christianity and wrote an incredible apology to the Jews 
pleading and begging them to believe in the Messiah, the Son of God. This is a small excerpt from that apology. He writes, Though the Son was incorporeal, He formed for Himself a body after our fashion. He appears as one of the sheep, yet He remained the shepherd. He was esteemed as a servant, yet He did not renounce the sonship. He was carried in the womb of Mary, yet arrayed in the nature of his father. He walked upon the earth, yet filled heaven. He appears as an infant, yet he did not discard the eternity of his nature. He was invested with a body, but it did not circumscribe the unmixed simplicity of his divinity. He needed sustenance inasmuch as he was a man yet he did not cease to feed the entire world inasmuch as he is God. He put on the likeness of a servant while not impairing the likeness of his father. Melito goes into much of what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter two, how though he was in very nature God, He didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited while holding those two qualities, both fully God and fully man together. He chose to live as one of us, to humble himself, to know exactly what it's like to go through what you're going through. Such humility, such restraint. Here's Hippolytus, and I'm going to go a little bit out of order here. I'm going to read a quote from 205 first and then a quote from 200. But here's Hippolytus around 205. He writes, Let us believe then, dear brethren, according to the tradition of the apostles, that God the Word came down from heaven into the Holy Virgin Mary, and thus becoming all that man is with the exceptions of sin, he could save fallen man and confer immortality on men who believe on his name. He had the heavenly nature of the father as the word and the earthly nature as taking to himself the flesh from the old Adam through the medium of the virgin coming forth into the world He was now manifested as God in a body, coming forth too as a perfect man. For it was not in mere appearance or by conversion, but in reality that he became man. And Hippolytus says that one of the main benefits and implications of the incarnation is that God could truly save man because God became man. Hippolytus around 200. Whereas the word of God was without flesh, he took upon himself the holy flesh by the holy virgin and prepared a robe, which he wove for himself like a bridegroom in the sufferings of a cross. He did this 
in order that by uniting his own power with our mortal body and by mixing the incorruptible with the corruptible and the strong with the weak, he might save perishing man. This is Hippolytus in 2.25. And he brings back the term logos that John uses. He writes, the logos received a body from a virgin and he remodeled the old man by a new creation. He passed through every period of life so that he himself could serve as an example for every age. For if he were not of the same nature as ourselves, it would be in vain that he commands us to imitate him as the teacher. For if he were of a different substance than us, why did he give us commandments that were similar to those he had received? Would that be the act of one who is good and just? So, one of the implications that Hippolytus reveals is that he passed through every stage of life so he could serve as an example to us. Not an example of how we cannot keep the commandments, but an example of how to keep God's commandments. Very interesting, very interesting point. And he says that we see God's goodness in this, in that he, if he preaches something, he practices it himself. That's a good leader. Methodius around 290 continues this same type of thought. He writes about Jesus. He being God was pleased to put on human flesh so that we beholding the divine pattern of our life as on a tablet should also be able to imitate him who painted it. And finally, we will look at Lactantius around 304 through 313, again, continuing this same thought. If anyone gives men commandments for living and molds the characters of others, he is obligated himself to practice the things that he teaches. Otherwise, the student will answer his teacher in this way, quote, I am not able to do the things that you command for they are impossible. Or, if you are so entirely convinced that it is possible to resist nature, you yourself practice the things you teach so that I can know that they are possible, unquote. But how can one practice what he teaches unless he is like the teacher? For if the teacher is subject to no passion, a man may answer the teacher in this manner, quote, It is my wish to not sin. However, I am overpowered, for I am clothed with frail and weak flesh. Unquote. Now, what will the teacher of righteousness say in reply to these things? How will he refute and convict a man who alleges the frailty of the flesh as an, as an excuse for his faults, unless he himself will also be clothed with flesh, so that he can show that even the flesh is capable of virtue? You see, therefore, how much more perfect is a teacher who is mortal 
for he is able to be a guide to one who is mortal. Therefore, let the men learn and understand why the Most High God, when he sent his ambassador and messenger to instruct mortals with the commandments of his righteousness, willed for him to be clothed with mortal flesh, to be afflicted with torture, and to be sentenced to death. For if he had been God only, he would not have been able to provide man with an example of goodness. The author of Hebrews in chapter two, starting in verse 14, explains the implications that Hippolytus and Methodius and Lactantius just laid out of God becoming man. He writes this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. And finally, from chapter four, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He knows, brothers and sisters, what you're going through. He knows, not just in a foreknowledge type of way, but in an experiential type of way. He knows what you're going through. And he knows how to navigate your situation in faithfulness and righteousness. So brothers and sisters, in light of the incarnation, let's depend on our incredible savior who gives grace upon grace in our time of need. God bless you.
stop the 